from New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. And on today's show, we have a generous helping of New York stories from writers Eileen Palma Moskowitz, John Gredler, and Vivian Manning Sheffel. Eileen Elizabeth, Catherine Ann, Mary Beth. My sisters and I had first names that depicted our Irish Catholic house, but the priest couldn't get past our last name. Moskowitz. I now have the second floor of 38 East 3rd Street to myself. A mattress on the floor, my radio cassette player, piles of books on either side. Not much else. Not even a chair. When we think of New York, we think of Lou Reed. We think of Joan Rivers. We think of Jocelyn Wildenstein. We think of Robert De Niro. We think of Al Sharpton. We think of Lady Gaga. Like the Mafia, there's no easy way in or out. And today on our Between the Lines segment, Anne Levin shares her thoughts about confronting the blank page and what it means to be a writer. Sometimes we writers delude ourselves into thinking that what we do is a calling or a mission or a destiny. But all those exalted notions are just going to get you into trouble. That's all just ahead on Read 650. There simply is no other place in the world like New York. Its architecture, culture, and general buzz combine to make New York the greatest city in the world. But New York is also a collection of unique neighborhoods, people, and stories. And we've selected three of those stories today from a live event we've produced for a full house at the Cell Theater on West 23rd Street. We begin today's show with writer Eileen Moskowitz-Palma, who tells her story of a New York childhood shaped by a dual and sometimes conflicting cultural identity. This is Eileen reading The Moskowitz Girl. Eileen Elizabeth, Catherine Ann, Mary Beth. My sisters and I had first names that depicted our Irish Catholic halves, but the priest couldn't get past our last name. Moskowitz. Isn't there anyone else? He asked our CCD teacher, the ghost of Italy haunting his New York accent. Katie and Eileen are the only ones who could actually read the Bible passages, the CCD teacher whispered. We can't have the Moskowitz girls do the first communion readings. Eastchester was full of Italian Catholics who had emigrated from Italy by way of the Bronx with surnames ending in vowels and enviously thick black hair and olive skin. We couldn't afford to live in Scarsdale where Moskowitzes were a dime a dozen. (laughs) Not to mention Catholic girls with Jewish last names wouldn't fit in there either. My father didn't think twice about agreeing to raise his children Catholic so he could give my mom a church wedding. After my grandfather's sisters and mother died in a concentration camp in Hungary while he was safely ensconced in medical school, survivor's guilt caused his faith to seep out of him. 
My father forgot all the Hebrew words he had memorized and closed the door on his own Jewish life after his bar mitzvah. My mother spent our childhood exploring alternative faiths. We went to meditation classes and bought chunks of crystals that promised to open our chakras and maybe even help with my asthma. Our house came with a cement Virgin Mary statue in the front yard, which is why you probably thought it was the Bronx. <laughs> now I get it. After 12 years of Catholic school, my mom was too superstitious to throw out a statue of the Blessed Mother. But our backyard was filled with round-bellied Buddhas and Ganesh, the elephant-headed deity. We lived a life far more suited to New Paul's than Southern Westchester. <laughs> But that would be too far of a commute for my father, who was a New Rochelle fire captain. The priest always knew who missed church. My mother said he was just keeping track of the collection envelopes. If the priest asks why you weren't there, tell him we go to Granddad's church in Tarrytown, my mother told Katie and I when my parents didn't feel like dropping us off. Katie nodded and ran off to play with her Cabbage Patch dolls. But I was certain that lying to a priest would land me in hell. A few weeks later, the priest pulled me aside and asked, Eileen, why haven't you and your sisters been at church? What's worse, getting grounded or eternal damnation? I blurted out, because my mother doesn't want to get up in the morning to take us. <laughs> the priest headed down to my sister Katie's classroom next and asked the same question. The answer slid off her tongue. Father, we go to our granddad's church every Sunday. When we swapped stories in our rusted Chevy Blazer that day, I got in trouble for selling my sister out. My father worked overtime at the firehouse to get us gifts, but he never got into having a Christmas tree. He would drag the artificial tree up from the basement and assemble the color-coded branches while swearing under his breath. Then he would disappear while my sisters and I hung the ornaments with my mom. He did, however, make the best challah bread French toast every Christmas morning. When I asked my father why we didn't celebrate Hanukkah and Christmas, like my friend who got eight days of gifts and a visit from the North Pole, he told me that Jewish people don't believe in Jesus. You can't be half Jewish, he said. It's a religion, not a nationality. You can't celebrate Jesus' birthday one week and be Jewish the next. So there I was, a Catholic girl with a Jewish name until years later when I married and took my husband's name, Palma, and we moved away from New York. Slowly, 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 my half-Jewish self slipped away. Bank tellers no longer wished me happy Hanukkah. Everyone knew me as a Catholic wife and mother. That's when I realized my father was wrong. I was half-Jewish. And seven years ago, when we moved back to Westchester, I opened my Facebook profile as Eileen Moskowitz Palma and became whole again. Thank you. 
Eileen Moskowitz-Palma divides her time between novel writing and teaching at the Writing Institute at Sarah Lawrence College. Her debut middle grade novel, Camp Click, was published at the height of the COVID pandemic, and all of her in-person events with schools, libraries, and bookstores were canceled. Her solution was to form a free virtual writing camp and book club program to serve the kids affected by school closures. She connected with kids across the country and caught the attention of institutions like the Providence Children's Museum, Sarah Lawrence College, the Rhode Island Department of Education, and the Thalia Kids Book Club Camp based out of Manhattan's Symphony Space. Eileen and her family live in Westchester County, New York. As a young man, one of writer John Gredler's jobs in New York City was managing a single-room occupancy rental building, or SRO, a chapter in his life that left indelible impressions. Recorded on stage at our Tales of New York event at Nancy Manicharian's The Cell Theater on Manhattan's West Side, this is John Gredler reading SRO. I now had the second floor of 3080's 3rd Street to myself, a mattress on the floor, my radio cassette player and piles of books on either side, not much else, not even a chair. Two tall windows faced the brick wall of a neighboring building with the faded letter spelling Provenzano Lanza Funeral Home painted on it. A small garden below allowed morning light to come in and the sounds of traffic to echo constantly day and night. During the day, I went to work at a single-room occupancy hotel down the street. Most of the tenants were drinkers, older, all were white, the majority with Irish surnames, Callahan, Quigley, Blackburn, Wedlock. The first big job was to clear out the backyard. It had been used as a dump for decades, piled high with broken furniture, shattered cast iron bathtubs, rotting clothes, endless beer cans and empty green pint bottles of night train and wild Irish rose. Next was cleaning and painting the small grime encrusted rooms of the SRO, starting with the window, spraying the amber panes of glass, watching the dark yellow rivulets of nicotine tinted fluid mix with the blue Windex to form a greenish liquid that pooled on the sill, spilling over the edge and down the wall to the floor. I was working there only three weeks when old Carl died. He had been bedridden the entire time. Carl had a long beard and looked emaciated, but the few times I saw him alive, he always nodded hello. He had cancer but did not want to go to the hospital. Mr. Morgan and Ed Blackburn would help him out, getting him his cigarettes and the bottle of night train he still managed to get down every day. Then Morgan came to me and said Carl would not answer his door. I got his key and we opened it. The heavy smell of nicotine layered over the odor of Carl's unclean body. Beneath that, the sharp acidic smell of urine rising up from the floor. I could see right away he was dead, his body stiff, his head turned up and away in an odd contortion facing the wall. He appeared to be looking for something or as if he was caught in a spasm of pain or of ecstasy before he died. Morgan murmured, he's gone, then turned to shuffle away. The sunlight coming into the room was muted by the yellowed shade. 
I touched Carl on his wrist, not to see if he was alive, but out of a morbid curiosity. His arm was like a piece of dry wood, his long-nailed fingers curled in like talons. Later, a cop stood at the open doorway without going inside. He looks dead all right, he said, before calling into the precinct on his radio. I'll have to stay outside the room until the coroner gets here. Could be a while. I got a chair for the cop to sit on. It wasn't until after 9 p.m. that the black van marked New York City coroner pulled up in front. Two men came in with a gurney, put Carl in a body bag, and carried him out. The next day, I went in to clear out his room. Under his bed were six mason jars full of urine, two without lids, in varying shades from amber to pale gold. A month later, it was Morgan who would not answer his door. He had gone into the hospital for an infection in his foot and was told he might lose it if the antibiotics didn't work. I'm not going to be no peg leg. While he was recovering, he stayed in bed. I would knock on his door and ask him if he needed anything from outside. His thin, pale face with a bulbous nose wore a constant doubtful expression that made me think of a cartoon character, though I never could recall which. He always insisted on tipping me a dollar or two when I came back from the bodega. Like most of the tenants, when they weren't drunk, Morgan was unfailingly courteous. The morning he didn't answer, I got the key and opened his door to see him propped up in bed with a plastic bag over his head, tied at the neck. I stood for a moment, unable to move, not comprehending. I stepped in and saw he was not breathing. A large red upside-down heart covered his face. The black lettering I knew spelled, I love New York, crinkled and unreadable. John Gredler is a poet and memoirist and a frequent contributor to Read 650. A recipient of the Catherine Gerfine Fellowship from the Writing Institute at Sarah Lawrence College, John's writing has been published in Atticus Review, Narratively, The Sun Magazine, Talking Writing, and others. John lives with his family in Tuckahoe, New York. Pop star Taylor Swift grew up in Pennsylvania, a few hours from New York City, and she came to the city as a kid for auditions and singing lessons. But when she finally moved into her Tribeca penthouse and was named the city's global tourism ambassador, well, that was catnip to storyteller and rabble-rouser Vivian Manning Chaffell, who had some opinions to share with Miss Swift in this open letter. This is Vivian Manning Chaffell on stage at the Cell Theater on West 23rd Street reading What Makes a New Yorker? Oh, Taylor Swift, I kind of like you. I really do. You, I like you even more that you've announced that you're donating a ton of money to our public schools because they really need the dough, but stop. Just stop. There's plenty about you that's impressive. You write your own songs. You don't dress like a hooker. You're as stunning as a supermodel. You work hard, seem congenial, and have some real talent. But don't get it twisted. Your appointment to global ambassador of our city does not anoint you into authenticity. It just underlines the fact that our beloved New York has eroded into something far more Mall of America than Metropolis. 
a capital of consumerism where everything's for sale and anything can be bought. Unfortunately, our jaded, tired black hearts aren't for sale. It's nice that you love our city, but it's hubris of the highest order to think that any real New Yorker will buy what you're selling in this capacity. I mean, you've lived here for what, five minutes? I have skin tags that are older than you. <laughs> Many moons ago, I came to New York just as you did, albeit a foot shorter and a lot poorer. Young, green, full of vim and vigor, I was blinking into the neon lights, entranced by the cacophony of sights and sounds, full of determination to live a, lift a metaphorical leg and make my mark. It's even way better for you than it was for me. I mean, you can afford opening ceremony. You can slink into a town car, head out to Roberta's, and chonk right into a pile of designer carbs. Paparazzi none the wiser. You actually own your own home and have an epic career. Instead of a couch that you've surfed on for three months and the shitty remedial office job you had to take to pay for it. You can throw all the money in the world at us, but calling yourself a New Yorker must be earned. I've lived here for over 17 years, plus an initial stint at college, and I'm still considered an interloper. A zillion dollar West Village tax write-off with views, a garage, elevator and doorman does not make you a New Yorker. Hanging out in Brooklyn with Lena Dunham does not make you a New Yorker. <laughs> when we think of New York, we think of Lou Reed. We think of Joan Rivers. We think of Jocelyn Wildenstein. We think of Robert De Niro. We think of Al Sharpton. We think of Lady Gaga. In fact, we think of Lena Dunham. We totally think of Lena Dunham. Like the Mafia, there's no easy way in or out. You have to do a lot of time here to earn your stripes. And you have to actually walk the streets. You can't just take it in from the back of a chauffeured Escalade. So what makes a New Yorker? Trudging through snowstorms and hurricanes to get to work makes you a New Yorker. Fearing Ebola, SARS, MERS, and Michigas while you're actively sneezed on in the subway every day makes you a New Yorker. Deeply inhaling the urine-scented stench of a subway platform in August and sighing, ah, makes you a New Yorker. Catching the mouse that mocks you with a trail of shit on your stove makes you a New Yorker. Knowing you may die and be reincarnated before the next F train shows up makes you a New Yorker. <laughs> Waiting two hours for a doctor's appointment and six in an emergency room while you're bleeding out your head makes you a New Yorker. Watching someone actually defecate on the street makes you a New Yorker. <laughs> Coping with the Darwinian bullshit that is school choice makes you a New Yorker. Schlepping groceries 15 blocks and up three flights of stairs makes you a New Yorker. So I have to ask, when was the last time you did any of those things? Everyone knows you aren't a true New Yorker until a perfect stranger checks you into place. Hopefully, this has brought you a step closer. You're welcome. <laughs> Love in a string of emoticons, Viv. Vivian Manning Chappelle is a journalist, essayist, and rabble rouser who writes for a vast array of publications like Jezebel, Working Mother, US Weekly, Time Out New York, and many others. She lives and works in Brooklyn, New York, with her husband and two kids. Read 650 isn't just a nonprofit literary organization with a mission to promote writers. We're also a growing community of writers and readers and listeners, and we'd like for you to join us. 
Scroll to the bottom of our homepage at read650.org and share your contact information to receive our semi-weekly newsletter. I'll share information about upcoming events and open submission prompts, but I'll never share your email address. And you can unsubscribe at any time with a single click. If this sounds good to you and you'd like to be part of our community, then please join us because we'd love to have you. And we'd love to have your help spreading the word about the spoken word. Our executive producer is Richard Kolath. I am your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team is Stephen Lewis, David Masello, and Lisa Donati-Mayer. Our chief technology officer is Sarah Caldwell. Our announcer is Fran Tuno. And our show is produced with generous help from Jim Russick. Coming up right after the break, it's Anne Levin with Between the Lines. Stay with us. Support for READ 650 comes from Nancy Manicharian's The Cell in New York City. Dedicated to the incubation and presentation of new works by emerging artists, The Cell has produced over a dozen critically acclaimed world premieres of new plays and musicals and serves as a home base for a large community of resident artists and organizations, such as Blackboard Reading Series, Artists Without Walls, and Tribeca New Music. View details and performance schedules at thecelltheater.org. Anne Levin has been writing professionally for her entire adult life, but that doesn't mean she finds it easy to sit down and start committing words to the page or the screen. For today's Between the Lines segment, Anne shares some observations about that with her essay, The Blank Page. Earlier this year, a friend of mine sent around a poem in email about what it's like to confront the blank page. For Steve, looking back over a long, successful career as a writer, it wasn't terrifying at all. On the contrary, he compared it to an undiscovered room or virgin forest where all manner of secrets might be revealed. I told him I found that amazing because from the very beginning, it's always been a struggle for me, wondering if the muse would show up and have anything interesting to say. Like a lot of writers, Steve has written a lot about the process of writing itself. In one essay, he called it a nagging hunger to enter into the unknown and give it form and language. In a poem last December, he described it as putting words up on a screen and taking them down, replacing them with other words. In another essay titled The 15-Minute Novel, he calculated how long it would take to produce a first draft by writing 15 minutes a day, just 40 weeks, not counting the rewrites. Recently, we were on a program together organized by Read 650, where he's a senior editor and literary ombudsman. He read an essay about how his decision to become a writer was deeply disappointing to his father, who ran a wholesale school supplies business. I recognized the type, hardworking, upwardly aspirational, even though I never met him. But I got the feeling after listening to Steve's essay that all his dad's harangues about the vital importance of flashcards and pencils were in some way responsible for Steve's success. My dad sold furniture. And even though I was never expected to go into the family business, I like to think that I inherited his devotion to work, 
which kept him up late many nights going over accounts. Sometimes we writers delude ourselves into thinking that what we do is a calling, or a mission, or a destiny. But all those exalted notions are just going to get you into trouble. At the end of the day, writing is a trade, an occupation, a profession like any other. As another writer friend of mine once told me, you don't have to believe what you wrote is good. You just have to believe it's your job to put it out in the world. Ann Levin is a writer and editor who worked for many years as a journalist, including as national news editor at the Associated Press. Before that, she was a reporter for the San Diego Tribune and several other newspapers. She continues to review books for the AP and for USA Today, and she's at work on a memoir. She and her husband, the photographer Stan Honda, live in New York City. And you can see Anne's work and learn more at annelevinwriter.com. Between the Lines is a regular feature of our show where writers of all genres contribute their thoughts on writing and the writing life. For details, click the submissions tab on our website, read650.org, where you'll also find open submission calls for upcoming shows. If you're in the podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Read 650 website and want to get each episode of the show delivered to you, along with a pepperoni pie from famous original Ray's Pizza, download any podcast app, then search for Read 650 and follow the show. We release new episodes on Writer Wednesdays. By the way, real New Yorkers know that despite the many claims to the throne, there hasn't been any, quote, real original Ray's Pizza in New York since about 1960. Just FYI. That's our show for today, and we thank writers Eileen Moskowitz-Pama, John Gredler, Vivian Manning-Chaffel, and Anne Levin. And for more Read 650, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you again for listening today and for helping spread the word about the spoken word. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650.